Good morning to you all. How I am glad to be here this morning. Some of you have asked me, Greg, where have you been? We miss you. Likewise, I, I miss you. You know, after the successful completion of my pastoral internship here at the Garden, shadowing Pastor Joel and observing the administration and the practical ministry aspects, especially in a context like this. Um, I am now connecting with, with uh, another Baptist church in the area for possible ministry opportunities. But nonetheless, I, this is home, and uh, Pastor Joel asked me to come preach today even though in his absence, and I trust that um, we all will be blessed as I bring you the word this morning. I'm going to preach from Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. And I have assigned, I did assign a very theological title for my message, but I realized that um, Pastor Joel transformed it to a more church title, uh, and I was just looking at that and I felt, yeah, perhaps that's right. So the title that I assigned for this message was The Theology of Works in a Living Church. The Theology of Work in a Living Church, and when I came today, I saw that the pastor, you know, made it understandable more at the level of the church and uh, entitled it Ministry in Action or the Church in Action, which is more or less um, good, good enough. You know, um, one of the temptations that theologians have is to always be theological all the time. And sometimes it might pass for a weakness. But I, I trust uh, that um, the, the purpose is for the glory of God. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you use me this morning to speak to this church and give me the grace to remain faithful to the text which I intend to expose for the edification of the church and for the glory of your name. Come now, O Lord, and empower me that your people might be blessed. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Amen. Now, Colossae was an urban city in the southeastern region of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor is present-day Turkey. And the church in Colossae was founded and pastored by a Colossian native called Epaphras. And it is believed that Epaphras was the mentee of the Apostle Paul. And like most churches in the first uh, century, the church in Colossae had some serious challenges adapting to Christian theological ideals, which were in many ways contrary to that of society and the religious order of that day. And the society allowed for class distinction. There was a clear difference between the rich and the poor. There was a clear difference between slaves and free. There was a clear difference between a man and a woman. But when the gospel came, the gospel totally opposed this societal view of humanity and argued that before God, we are all equal. There was no Jew or Gentile. There was no man or woman. There was no slave or free. We were all equal in the eyes of the Lord. 
And because of this very appealing nature of the gospel message, it became so attractive, mostly to the downtrodden in the society, which then were slaves and women. And so they flocked into the church in their numbers and exploited every good thing that the gospel message had to offer. So the church then in the society was like the safe heaven for the oppressed and the marginalized. And they felt at home that was the only place where they could feel like human beings, a place where they would be given an opportunity to express themselves and feel, have a sense of self-worth. But the issue here is, is that it was not solid biblical theology that drew these men and women into the church. It was simply the liberating aspect of the gospel message, which was appealing to them, and so they came to the church. Now, when solid biblical theology is not the basis for experiential Christianity, the result is what I will call a wishy-washy theological praxis. The thing is said to be wishy-washy, it has no head or tail. It has no proper definition. It has no depth. It has no quality. So when your Christianity is not informed by solid biblical theology, you are neither here nor there. And that was the problem with the church in Colossae. And when you are leading a Christian, a Christian life that is not defined by biblical theology, several views about God and about life will start getting distorted in your head. And so when it came to stewardship, membership, working in the church, the Christians in Colossae had a distorted view of work. Some members of the church felt that since they were now free in Christ, they cannot be slaves to nobody anymore, whether in the church or in the society. And so they resented every invitation to work in the church. To those who at least did some work, they did so mainly just to please people because that's what they are used to. Slaves never work from their heart. Slaves are forced to work. They are only used to working because their masters want them to work. So they, they, they are used to working, not from their heart, but just to please people so they don't get beaten or they don't get um, um, abused. And so they brought that kind of perspective of work into the church. And when they were assigned duties in the church, they did it just to please people. And others insisted that since they are no longer slaves who work for no pay, if they were to do any kind of work in the church, whether it be cleaning the church, you know, setting up the church, they should receive some kind of payment or receive some kind of recognition, preferential recognition for their services. Because if they don't receive that reward and payment, then it's not different when they worked in the society as slaves. Now, I want you to put yourself in this scenario as, as a pastor in a church like that. What would you do if you are stuck with a bunch of church members who have this distorted view of work in the church? Members who are more concerned about their well-being, their reward, than they are concerned about the health and well-being of the church. Members who are more concerned about gain than they are concerned about fostering the ecclesial mandate of the ministry. What would you do if you are stuck 
with a group of people who only work just so that others can see them and approve them? What would you do with a group of people who insist that if they were to play in the praise team or to clean the church or to do some kind of meaningful service, the church must pay them? What would you do in such a situation? Well, this morning I set out to say that you do what Epaphras, the pastor of the church in Colossae, did when he was faced with this situation and he was dealing with these people. So what you do is that you need to first of all realize that the only way of raising up a living church and empowering your members to serve faithfully to the glory of God lies in your effort in ensuring that your members are grounded with solid biblical theology of work. When I talk about theology of work, I simply mean God's way of working. What God teaches concerning working in the church or in the society. And Epaphras realized that his members needed a proper theology if he had to lead a thriving, living church. But sadly today, whenever the word theology is mentioned, even among evangelical Christians, many tend to react negatively with a misconception that it's all about dry and fruitless arguments about doctrines. And someone might already be saying in their heart, Oh, Greg, please slow down a little bit on this theology. Theology is for theologians in the academia. But one thing I want you to understand this morning is that theology, biblical theology, is the top root of life. In a perverse, morally and spiritually perverse world in which we live in, theology is to a Christian what a top root is to a plant in an arid climatic condition. Plants that grow in arid regions in the world need the taproot so they can dig deeper into the soil to get water for their nourishment. Without this taproot, they're going to die off in the surface because they need to dig right down deep. Theology for a true Christian in a world like this when the state is approving what the, what the Lord condemns and applauding those who reject the teachings of Scripture, you need solid biblical theology to go right deep into the soil to get the nourishment that you need to function meaningfully as a member of the church. So no one can avoid theology. Everyone is a theologian. Our views about God, our views about the church, our views about life, our views about church membership, our views about stewardship, they are all influenced directly or indirectly by the kind of theology that we have. And that's why this great reformed theologian R.C. Sproul couldn't have put it any better when he noted. He said, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. 
Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. End of quote. The more Christians react negatively to theology, the more vulnerable they will be in embracing bad theology. And the more bad theology prevails, the weaker the church will become. Karl Barth once noted, he said, the church is only in practice what it is in theology. And so as a member of the Garden Church, worshiping in this church and living in this community, I want you to realize this morning that whether you are aware of it or not, you are a theologian. You are a theologian. As you go about your businesses, as you relate with people within the church, as you relate with people in the city of Baltimore, whether professionally or not professionally, you are a theologian. But I have a challenging question for you this morning. What kind of theologian are you? As an elder of this church, as a deacon of this church, as a member of the praise team, as an, whatever it is, an usher, whatever role in which you are playing in this church, what kind of a theologian are you? What kind of a theologian are you? Good theology can only come from God because God is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. And we can only develop good theology when we correctly study the Word of God because the Word is God. And for our theology to be good, it has to be based on what God has revealed to us. And for us today, in the modern century, what God has revealed to us is based on what we see within the pages of Scripture. We go to nowhere else to learn about God other than the Bible. But for the Christians in the first century, the way in which they, they came face to face with God's revealed Word was not only through the Word at the time, but also by listening to the apostles of Christ. So the Bible is to us today what the apostles of Christ was to the Christians in the first century. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say, listen to what I say, for I, for I pass on to you what I receive from the Father. Now, when Epaphras realizes that the only way in which he can solve the work ethical problem in his church was to introduce his people to solid biblical theology. He had to go through the, to the source of theology, which is the revealed word of God. And for that time for him, it meant going to his mentor, who is an apostle of Christ, the apostle Paul, the theologian of his age. And so he traveled all the way to Rome, where the Apostle Paul was in prison. And he narrated to the Apostle his challenge in his church and how people reacted to him and to the work of the ministry. When the Apostle heard these things, we believe that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the letters to the Christians in Colossae. And amongst many other things he addressed in this letter, in verse 23 to 25 of chapter 3, he mentioned this matter of stewardship in, in the church. And he told them 
in verse 23. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you, you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done. For God has no favorites. And so the Apostle Paul sent this letter to the church in Colossae through their pastor Epaphras so these people might be exposed to God's will for their life as far as working in the church and in the community is concerned, that they may be informed to, to engage in meaningful experiential Christianity. But what is Paul's main concern within the context of these texts? Paul's main point in this text simply stated it is this. Do your work with all of your heart. And this morning I want to challenge every worker in the garden church. Do your work with all of your heart. The word whatsoever in verse 23 suggests that this work is not only limited within the church necessarily, it extends even to the society. Whatever work you find your hands doing, whether it be working in the church or working in the, in the community or working at your, at your job place, whatever it is that you're doing, make sure that you do it with all of your heart. That is Paul's fundamental concern in this text. But the question that arises is what is the rationale? Why is it necessary for the Christians in Colossae to take to heart this Pauline admonition for work with all of your heart? Why should we work, or why should you work with all of your heart? The text provides three clear answers in response to this question which will constitute my three points which I need to pass across to you this morning. Why should you do your work with all of your heart? Because you are working for God rather than for man. It may have been a man who assigned you. You may have been supervised by a human being, but don't let that deceive you or don't get yourself twisted up you are working for God and because you're working for God you must do your very best why must you work with all of your heart Paul's second reason is because since you are working for God only him can reward you and he will reward you with an inheritance. The pa Paul's usage of the, of, the, of the concept of inheritance here suggests heavenly. In other words, the work that you do in the church, the work that you do in the community, there is a heavenly inheritance that awaits you. That's why you must do it with all of your heart. But I want you to take note of this and be very, very attentive to this. You do not work in order to receive an inheritance. You work because you have been given an inheritance. The inheritance Paul is talking about here is heavenly 
And this heavenly inheritance is only made available to us by grace. Grace is an unmerited favor. What we get from God when we do not deserve it. What we get from God when we didn't work for it. So the, the, the basis for working so hard is not because you need to work very hard in order to receive an inheritance. No. Because if that were the case, then it's no longer grace. It's your hard work. But what has been reserved for you in heaven has, been all, has only been made possible by grace. There is nothing in your ability. There is no amount of work you can put in to qualify to even receive an inch of what God has prepared for you in glory. So the motivation of work, working from the bottom of your heart is not to earn anything. It's because all has been given to you. And I want you to take note of this. God knows no partiality when it comes to blessing his children and what he has laid in store for us in glory. Now, for instance, I have been in ministry now for about 10 years and more, and I have spent about 10 years studying theology, and I am a doctor of theology. I have traveled all over the world, in Africa and in Europe and in America, preaching the gospel. And so many people have been blessed. And Now, put me in this category and think about another person, for instance. Just a quiet young girl in the garden church. Nobody knew about her. She probably has never left Maryland. And she, she has no expertise, theological knowledge of the Bible. And all she knows is just what she learns from Sunday school. And what she does is she just cleans the church. And she does her job faithfully cleaning the church. No one knows her. No one recognizes her. But she does it faithfully. Now, if both of us were to go to heaven, Dr. Greg Kamen going to heaven, international preacher, doctor of theology, wealth of experience, and this humble girl going to heaven as well. Will I receive more preferential treatment in heaven because of my ministerial pedigree than this young girl would? This heavenly inheritance we're talking about, will my inheritance be better off because of who I am and more than that of this young girl or this young boy who no one knows, but she's just been doing some little work in the church. I want to tell you that no matter who you are, no matter how educated or well-read you are, when we go to heaven, we will be treated equally. The reason is because what has been preserved for me and for you in heaven is not enhanced by how much we worked for while we were on earth. It's not enhanced by how well we studied theology. It is only made possible by grace. And so what this means to me is that because God has so loved me and has given me the best gift I can ever think of to be in his presence and to have a heavenly inheritance, I want to do as best as I can to do the work of the ministry here and use every tool that he has given me to do so. Not because, not so that I can inherit anything, but because I have been giving everything. If God has given me everything, why shouldn't I give him my all as best as I can? If it means going to school and spending 10 years studying theology, why not do that? If it means traveling the world, preaching the gospel, saving souls, why not do that? Because God has given me a heavenly inheritance. And for you, just do your best. 
Your best is, in, is, is all what God is requiring of you. You don't have to be the elder. You don't have to be the deacon in order for you to, to appear important and significant before God or to be able to secure your inheritance. Whatever it is that you are, it's enough. Just be good at it. Do it from the bottom of your heart. Do it with a sincere heart. That's all what God is asking from you. Even if it means ministering to one person, you are no better than the evangelist ministering to thousands of people. Or he's no better than you. Even if it means you are at the background of ministry, no one knows that you are there, but you are doing something. Just do it from the bottom of your heart. And why should you do so? Because you are not working for any man. Don't be moved by the acknowledgement that comes from man because men don't have to recognize you. You are not working for them. Do your work with all of your heart because you are working for God. And the one for whom you are working for is the one who will reward you. Do not be motivated by how well you are recognized in the church in order for you to work. Do not be motivated by how much you will be giving in terms of material or financial gain before you work. Because as good as that may seem, your real reward has already been kept for you in heaven. And that should be your motivation. When you grab this theology of work, you will be fearless in your determination to work for God. You will be unstoppable in your drive to do the work of the ministry because it is for God that you work and not for man. Why should you do your work with all of your heart? Paul gives the third reason. He says, because if you do not do so, God will punish you without partiality. In verse 25 of our text, he says, But if you do what is wrong, what does Paul mean here by what is wrong? What is wrong in context is work that is done with a selfish motive. Wrong here is work that is done just so that people can see. Wrong here is work that is done for financial gain. That is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And God will punish you for that. And Paul says, be warned. If you do what is wrong, no matter who you are, no matter how well educated in theology you are, no matter how well experienced in the ministry you are, God will not show any sense of partiality in punishing you for your wrongdoing. And this should be a warning for us. So what am I saying here? Based on this text, I'm saying that the apostles' fundamental concern within the context of this text simply stated it is this, that, the, that we must do our work with all of our hearts, whether it be working in the church or working in the society or working in the community, or working at your place of work. And the reason why you must take this seriously and do your work from the bottom of your heart is because you are not working for anybody, you are working for God. Number two, the reason why you should take this to heart is because no man is really going to acknowledge you. No man is really going to reward you with the reward that you deserve. It is only God for whom you work for that will actually reward you. And number three, because if you don't do your work with all of your heart, God will punish you because that is wrongdoing. Now what this should mean to you this morning is this. When you are motivated to work in the church, when you're motivated to work in this church because of somebody, 
it's very dangerous it's very inexpedient and it's very unwise no matter who this person is whether it be the pastor whether it be the wife of the pastor whether it be an elder or whoever it is whenever your motivation to work in the garden church hinges on the encouragement you get from a man that is a very dangerous position in which you've placed yourself. You know why? Because man, the Bible says, is like grass. No matter how righteous, no matter how holy. Man is like grass and his grace is like flowers. The grass will wither and the flowers will fall. It's only the word of God that will never change. In other words, no matter how appealing a man may look to you, time will come when man is going to change. Just like a beautiful blossoming flower will fall eventually. Just as a beautifully nourished plant will dry off eventually, so too man will dry off. And that's why the Bible is clear in warning us. He says, curse be any man who puts his trust in a man. That you are being pastored by a pastor does not mean that you should put your trust in a pastor. That you are being led by a, a team of elders does not mean that you should put your trust in, the, in these elders because when you do that they're going to fail you. I remember a long time ago when I was in high school young man for God burning with the fire of the Lord and there was this young girl who came to our school and some of you who we've all gone through high school when a new new lady comes around all boys are looking at her and fresh meat and all of that. And so this lady noticed that while many other guys were, you know, trying to war her and very attentive to her, I was totally different. I never even, I, I didn't show that kind of advances at her. And she saw that I was different. And then she came to me and tried to inquire, who are you? Why are you a little different from every other person? And I told her, well, I'm a Christian. So I don't, I don't do that. And she was very surprised to find a young man who would be committed to the Christian principle and not be engaged in what everyone is doing, you know, sowing their oats. And so the girl was drawn to me. And this girl so believed in me and had such confidence in me she looked up to me as her guide, actually. And so when, 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 when people come to her and want to deceive her into the flesh, she would say, no, I'm not going to do that because Greg's not going to like it. And then she would come to me and say, you know, hey, do you know this guy came to me and I told him off because I know you're not going to like it. Then I told her, I said, that's good. But the only problem I have there is that it seemed to me that your reason for being faithful is because of me. Yeah, you, it's a dangerous position to be because I cannot be trusted. Though I, don't, I, I do not doubt myself, but I am never the basis for faithfulness. The basis of your faithfulness must be in God. Because God is never going to fail you. There is going to be no time of regret. The Bible says he is the father of the heavenly lights. He does not change like the shifting shadows. And then he goes, no, but, but I, just, I just believe in you. I, I feel that. No, I said, no, do not base your faithfulness on me. I may be a motivation. I may be an encouragement, but I am never a standard. And the girl was so actually disappointed. And she ended up discouraged that the only person she was looking up to 
discouraged her from looking up to any man, and she ended up slipping around. Now, why did I bring up this story? I'm saying, whenever the basis of your faithfulness in the church rests on any man, someday this man is going to say something to you that's going to discourage you. This man or this woman may eventually leave the church. And when they leave the church, you have nowhere else to look up to, and so you will become discouraged. Or this man may even fall into some sin that totally discourages you. And when that happens, you feel like all Christians, the hypocrites. What is the basis of your faithfulness, my dear friends? as you function in this church. The songwriter says, My faith looks up to thee, thou man of Calvary. The other song says, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my strength and my righteousness. When every other rock is sinking sand, he remains immovably secure. And you know what this is? That is theology. When you align experiential Christianity on God, then you are aligning it on biblical theology. Because when that's not the case, I tell you, things are going to go offhand. And when those whom you looked up to as the basis for your faithfulness start failing, you will either be discouraged to do any work in the church, or when you do that, you will no longer be doing it from the bottom of your heart. And when you, not, you don't do work from the bottom of your heart, Paul says that is wrongdoing. And he says that God is going to punish you without partiality. No matter who you are. You may have been in the church for several years and you've done some good things. But if you engage in lip service and people pleasing work, God will punish you. Therefore, it is never a wise thing to set any man as your standard for work. The pastor may be your encouragement. The pastor may encourage you in different ways, but never your standard. When men become simply your encouragement and not your standard, it means that even when they fall, because we are all brethren in the same fellowship, you go and lift them up. Rather than saying, since they have fallen, therefore I will fall too. And one of the reasons why so many people may have left the Garden Church is because of this reason. Their motivation of work premised on people. And when people did not recognize them for what they were doing, and because they were not receiving the reward they expected to receive, they became discouraged and they left. Oh, because they were, it was because of people when they spoke something to them that it didn't please them, they stopped singing in the choir. They stopped participating in the meetings because it was all based on man and not on God. But what this should mean for you, allow your motivation to be God. And let nobody stop you from doing the work of God. Not even the pastor, my friend. Not even the pastor's wife. Not even the pastor's family. Not even the elder. Not even whosoever matters in this church. Don't stop doing the good work of God. Whether they like you or not, keep doing 
the good work you are doing for the Lord. Whether they support you or not, keep doing the good work that you are doing for the Lord. Whether they encourage you or not, keep doing the good work that you are doing for the Lord. Whether they recognize you or not, keep doing the good work that you are doing from the Lord from the bottom of your heart. And God who sees you will surely reward you with the promised heavenly inheritance. I like what Martin Luther King once advised about, about hard work. He once said, he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michael Angelo painted. Or as Beth Oven composed music. Or as William Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job very well. Leave a legacy in this church. One of the things about the Garden Church is that in a way it's a transient church where young people come in here for school and for career. Sooner or later they're going to go away. Do something for God. Plant a seed in this church where when others will come, they will see your good work and give glory to God. Now the Bible does not say, let your faith so shine before men that they may see. No, it didn't say so. It said, let your light so shine before men. It didn't say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good faith. No, it didn't say so. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give the glory to God. What good work are they seeing because of your faithfulness as a member of the Garden Church? What good work are they seeing in, the, in this community of Baltimore because of your faithfulness as a member of of the Garden Church with a solid biblical foundation. The key, my dear friends, is doing the work from the bottom of your heart. The key, my dear friends, is doing the work not mindful of whether people are applauding you or not, but just keep doing what you are doing. As long as people are being blessed and God is being glorified, let nobody stop you. The Apostle Paul encourages says, do not be weary of doing good. Martin Luther is saying that whatever it is, whether even if it means just sweeping the streets, just do it well. Be the best street sweeper they can ever be. When you work from the bottom of your heart, you will be your best. Be the best usher in the garden church they can ever be. Be the best praise team leader or member. Be the best elder or deacon they can ever be when you do so from the bottom of your heart. That's the key. And when you do that, as Martin Luther King says, is such that the host of heaven and earth will pause and say, Clearly, a great member of the Garden Church. Clearly, a great resident of Baltimore City who did the work of the Lord faithfully. And others can hear of your good works, can see your good works, and glorify God. Because Let me now conclude with the poetic words written on the wall of Mother Teresa's home for children in Calcutta. It's all about motivation and determination to do meaningful work in the community for the glory of God. And this is what it says. 
is that people are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. But forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives, but be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies, but succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, People may deceive you, but be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight, but create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous of you. But be happy anyway. The good you do today will often never be enough. And it might be forgotten tomorrow. But do good anyway. Give the best you have and it may never be enough for the community, but give your best anyway. And lastly, she says, because in the final analysis, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never, it was never between you and anybody anyway. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I ask, Father, that you will cause these words to bear meaning in the hearts of everyone listening to me right now. Raise an army of men and women who will serve faithfully in the Garden Church and in the city of Baltimore and its environment. Help us to engage in meaningful experiential Christianity that will tell of your goodness in this city. Thank you for your grace that's sufficient for our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.